next hour on most of these the same frequencies. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back to the program. Today we are going to talk about a rather serious topic, the future. This is Cracking the Code with Sudhir Ispahani. In this episode, the general manager of the Kahala Hotel and Resort in Honolulu, Hawaii, Gerald Glennon, recalls how his moral upbringing in the southern United States fostered a curiosity of people. It's my nature to, I'm curious when it comes to people, and you don't know of someone you meet, their story and what they've gone through and where they've come from and those kinds of things. And when I meet somebody for the first time, usually I ask more questions than I, you know, give of who I am and where I'm from and what I'm about. This genuine interest in humankind led Gerald into a prolific career in the hotel industry, where he has learned to take adversity in stride. His leadership style, then and now. Young and aggressive, trying to be smart, more calm now, more confident, just because you know, you've made some successes, you've made some mistakes. You know, I wish that I had known then that failure is a positive aspect of growth and so forth, and nothing's ever going to go absolutely right. Ultimately, for Gerald, his main focus and what keeps him driven always goes back to his roots. It's the people. I think I told you at one point that a hotel is like a small town, and we have all of the different components of running a small town. At the end of the day, there are a lot of things going on, all different aspects, whether it's sales and marketing or finance or safety and security or culinary and all of those things. And as you know, a hotel is 24 hours, seven days a week, so you either keep up or you get run over. And now, your guide for Cracking the Code, Sudhir Ispahani. So, aloha, Gerald. Welcome to Cracking the Code. Thank you, Sudhir. I'm really honored to, first of all, get to know you and also have the privilege of sitting in your office here and uh, learning a little bit about your life lessons on leadership. Well, I'm delighted, and thank you for uh, making the time and and honoring me with uh, participation. I appreciate that. Thank you very much. Gerald, uh, we typically start with most of our guests going back to our early childhood days. As you know, we learn a lot from from childhood. So take me back a little bit to what happened, where you grew up, mom and dad, siblings, all that stuff. Sure. You know? Well, I was uh, born, believe it or not, in a very small town in Mississippi uh, called Natchez. It's a historic town, hasn't changed much in the last 300 years, I believe. Mostly known for its uh, antebellum architecture as it survived a lot of that conflict, the North and the South and the Civil War. But small town, and uh, my parents, not from the South. My father was born first-generation Irish-American in Philadelphia, and my mother was also first-generation American, born in the Chicago area, but they met in New York in the late 40s. Both of them were in the arts and singers and so forth. But um, as my older brother came along, and by the way, I have five sisters and I have three brothers, so it was always a bit a bit interesting, to say the least. My father also came up as a young man in baseball, as his family was involved with baseball. And when my older brother Tom came along, born in Queens, New York, my dad realized that with a, with a family coming on, it was time to make some money. And I guess starving artists, um, you know the rest on that one. So he had the opportunity to move from New York City in the late 40s to Natchez, Mississippi, and raise nine children there. I was born in 1952, my three older siblings, of course, before that, but um, we grew up in the Jim Crow South. I remember being a small town, um, I call it American apartheid, basically, because there was um, very obvious segregation and so on, and you know um, 
that story. My parents were conservatory grads, that sort of thing, and found themselves in this kind of challenging political environment because, for example, my father was, uh, at one point, uh, we were Catholic in um, the Baptist South. So if you were black, Jewish, or Catholic, you were considered uh, a target, if you will. That said, in the uh, church where we were, the Monsignor asked my father to teach an encyclical um, that was put out during the time of Pope John XXIII called Mater et Magistra, which means in Latin, mother and teacher, and it was a human rights encyclical. And he was teaching small groups of adults in the early 50s in the South. And it got to be a little bit difficult because at one point um, he received harassing mail and was followed and those kinds of things. And because he had a big family, um, he kind of moved away from that. But the way he ended up down there was he had a connection through his family uh, with baseball. He went from New York City as a singer to Natchez, Mississippi, to manage a, a farm team for the Cleveland Indians called the Natchez Indians. And he did that for a period of time until he was introduced to some folks and ultimately became a, an uh, independent, self-employed uh, broker of oil and gas in the Louisiana and Mississippi Gulf Coast. Did that well. When I was 18 years old, a lot of his work was taking him to Colorado and Wyoming, prospecting and wildcatting, if you will. Mm -hmm. And uh, he decided it was time that we see that there's someplace other than the Deep South in Mississippi, and we moved lock, stock, and barrel to Denver, Colorado. And when was um, this? That was in 1969. I was the first in my family to graduate from college. My older brother, Tom, my two older sisters took a stab at it, but I actually make it through college and was always rather independent. As a matter of fact, uh, it was suggested that I was the quiet one, being number four, and if you've ever grown up in a house with five sisters, you understand the pecking order. Right. So it was, where's Gerald? Where's Gerald? <laughs> and I think even to this day, that kind of is part of my personality, if you will. I don't like to uh, be the loudest voice in the room. But then took off, went and did my undergraduate work, um, got a degree in business, and um, I minored in philosophy and history. When I graduated, uh, there wasn't the option of going home again. My dad was quite clear that he had done his part, and I had to go to work. So I, I basically went and became a front desk clerk in a Sheraton hotel at the Denver Stapleton International Airport. And I did it for a year, and I really, really liked it. It was something I never thought I would do. I had worked in pizzerias and dinner theaters and that sort of thing, kind of going through school. But I was fortunate enough that the University of Denver at the time had one of the top three hotel schools in the country. So I went back to school and uh, in two years time I got a second degree and was recruited out of university and then I started my professional hotel career and that was some time ago and I became a hotel gypsy and here I am in Hawaii after all this time. That's an amazing uh, story to actually, uh, so I'll, uh, before we, I'm, I'm sure we'll talk a lot more about this as the show goes on, but Clearly, um, family, you grew up in a big family, and you did a lot of observation, I'm sure, mom and dad, all your siblings. What were some of those things related to morals and values that you sort of picked up early on that you would say, now you look back, reflect on your career, and reflect on your life and say, yeah, those are still very valuable to me? Well, I think the one thing that comes to mind is my mother and father were very different people, my dad was always busy and working and so forth, but he would accuse my mom um, of being able to talk to the devil or a saint. She didn't really care too much, was very keen and very interested in, in people uh, and what is the story and that sort of thing. So 
I think that that characteristic I've kept. Sometimes to this day, my wife and I will attend a function or go someplace and she'll say, now, you don't need to talk to everybody in the room, right? But it's my nature to, I'm curious when it comes to people. And you don't know of someone you meet, their story and what they've gone through and where they've come from and those kinds of things. And I think that's, um, when I meet somebody for the first time, usually I ask more questions than I, you know, give of who I am and where I'm from or what I'm about. And I think it's a wonderful way to break the ice, get to know people, whether it's um, in a social setting or a business setting, is to uh, let that natural curiosity about people and so forth to come out. And then there was the growing up with a big family, the survival aspect of it. Mm. You know, keep your head down. <laughs> and back in those days, it was challenging, I'm sure, you know. I mean, it was, but you know, I would never change the growing up time that I had because you got to observe a lot of people who were in positions of authority and power and the decisions they would make that sometimes what you were taught at home was completely contrary to the things that you were observing even growing up as a, a, a kid and then a, a teenager and so forth, knowing that, you know, it's probably not the right thing, but at the same time, look and listen and, and learn what's going on. And we were we were encouraged and directed to go kind of in a different direction than the mainstream in Mississippi in the 50s and 60s. That just was... But I learned so much um, back then about... You know, we, everybody at that time, um, there was a book written called The Help. It was written by Catherine Stockett. It was on the New York bestsellers list for a long time, and a film was ultimately made. And um, I, I grew up with that, getting off the school bus at 3 in the afternoon and maids in uniform and standing on the corner waiting for their buses to go home and all of that kind of a thing. But we were never allowed to suggest that they were anything but hardworking good people. We, we had people in the house, and um, I, I paid more attention really to, to them than I did sometimes to my parents because they were extended family and so forth. So I, I'll never understand the pickup truck with the rebel flag on the back and the gun in the gun rack. Mm -hmm. um, it just never stuck. Uh, in Hawaii, there's a word called pono, and it means to be right, to do the right thing, uh, at all costs. And we were really encouraged, benefit of the doubt for people always. So mm -hmm. that stuck with me from you know, here we are sitting in your office. You've had a very successful career, and uh, you're a leader. So take us back a little bit to when did you first feel like you were getting thrust into leadership, where you started to feel like, oh, i got to do something as a leader, as a manager. What were some of those convictions that started coming your way? Yeah, you know, you get out of school. My first job was in Southern California in a beautiful hotel there. And because I had gone through school and I was degreed and I was recruited, I thought that I should walk right into the executive office and just, okay, I'm going to run the place now. <laughs> and I found myself in a uniform behind a big push broom sweeping the parking lot and then the kitchen and dishwashing and standing under a linen chute and sorting linen and all. I was like, <laughs> what? This, this is crazy. Yeah. I thought I should be, but I had a lot to learn at right. that point. And uh, when you come through your management training time and you're given your first job as an assistant manager or, or someone in what you would call entry-level management or certainly going into mid-management, um, and you have a team mm -hmm. it's assigned to you, is when you realize that you have a responsibility not only to improve your own situation by working hard, but to help others as well, um, not stepping over people who happen to be in the organizational chart somewhere below you or whatever. You know, your success depends on the success of that team, and, and it, it causes you to pause and, and reflect, you know, what do you want to be? And when you're young and cocky, 
I didn't get it right the first time or the second time or maybe even the third time, but after a while you realize that you set a path and you take off and you don't look over your shoulder to realize that nobody's following is kind of you know not where you want to be. Um, it took me a long time. In Hawaii, we always describe effective leadership you know, with um, the metaphor of a canoe where the leader is always in the back of the canoe and when you're in the front... You're not seeing the dynamic or the effectiveness of that. And I think I picked up on that concept early on. But certainly when you become a division head or you, you're managing managers, the heat can get turned up a little more than when you're managing a team of colleagues or staff. And you'll find, too, that in life and in business, it can be a competitive environment. And sometimes you can be challenged by others who uh, are on a in their own mind, a fast track or just because of their talent or their drive or, or being competitive and so forth. And you have yeah. to understand how do you survive in that space and what kinds of decisions do you make? So I would say within the year or so after I finished university and began to be assigned or work with teams, it became evident to me at that point that, okay, everything communicates, whether you open your mouth, how you walk, how you engage people. So you need to become as accomplished as you can with that. So obviously that's leadership for all of us is a, is a journey where we're learning constantly and trying to improve. How would you define uh, your leadership style back then and now? Oh, <laughs> young and aggressive, trying to be smart, more calm now more confident just because, you know, you've made some successes, you've made some mistakes. You know, I wish that I had known then that failure is a positive aspect of growth and so forth, and nothing's ever going to go absolutely right consistently all along. And I find that when I've stumbled or gone left when I should have gone right, that it's helped me to get to the point now where I really think I operate with some knowledge of the business that I'm attached to, but uh, a lot of instinct, a lot of gut. I think only time can really help somebody get to a point where, you know, used to be perhaps making decisions came with certain consequences, good or bad, depending on the outcome of the decision. But then you get to a point in your life where it's okay. I sometimes make an analogy when we're working on a project or people are tend to get locked up in the process or whatever and say, look, wait a minute, this isn't Queen's Medical Center we don't do surgery at noon. Nobody's going to die, we mm -hmm. hope. So let's get on with it. Let's make some decisions. Let's select a, a course that's based on some intelligence and some so forth. But I think now I'm much more free in terms of thinking and, you know, running a business as if it were my own and not so much as an employee and trying to make decisions that are in the best interest of the business as if my name was on the building. So I, I guess that's a long answer to saying I'm less aggressive, more calm, a little more confident in myself. Mm -hmm. But I've been doing this for 40 years. <laughs> so, and I still make mistakes, but uh, I don't live in them. I mm -hmm. redirect and try to move on. And I think to foster an environment that's collaborative, where people feel they can make a contribution, that they're not constantly eating my decisions or whatever, I, I think that's extremely important that... Um, Everybody has an opportunity to contribute. Yeah, it makes my job that much easier. And of course, you've had uh, you know a long history of, of being a leader. So one uh, one question I have for you is clearly the next generation of leaders are mm -hmm. up and coming. How do you see changes in managing people and the the new up and coming leaders? And what have you had to do in mm -hmm. trying to course correct yourself to 
yeah. to make them more effective and make yourself more effective. Well, the younger folks that are coming up, everything is fast. Technology is ultimately prevalent. Instant gratification. The days of going to work for the railroad and getting a gold watch after 50 years, I don't know of many places where you can do that anymore. And to try and help people understand that there's value in relationships mm -hmm. and everything is not disposable. So it sounds like I'm disrespectful of <laughs> the younger, <laughs> you know, legions that are coming behind. But I think technology plays a big part in it. And sometimes just to put it down for a minute, have a conversation, try to understand what people are thinking and help them. The hotel industry is a very transient industry. People tend to move a lot, at least in my experience. Um, and I, I don't think it's any different. And certainly that's okay. And I've got some young people who are working with me on my executive team that I know are not going to be here for 10 years or 15 years. But if in the time that they are here, I can learn from them and they can learn from me. So even if being in an independent hotel operation like we are here, where there aren't all of the many opportunities to grow within a flag or within a brand, that I can be proud to say that, you know, they grew up under or they went to their next best opportunity because of the participation and the collaboration and so mm -hmm. forth. So it's more fluid, I think, now than it was when I was younger. The thought of changing jobs every three or four years, which sometimes when you're young and you're building a career you have to, was terrifying, really, to go out now. It's like, oh no, I've been here a year, it's enough, I'm going to go do something else. And it's done almost bravely, you know. I don't know if you agree or disagree with that. There's a lot more risk-taking, and the environment has changed quite significantly. I, I definitely agree with that. Mm -hmm. I mean, clearly in your in your uh, learning of being, all of us want to be better leaders, mm -hmm. but there are many things I'm sure you've learned not to do as a leader. What are some of those things, Gerald, that you would say, you know, as a leader you've learned? I think the first thing that pops into my head is speak first. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. You always, uh, in your position leading a company or a group, you have the uh, ability to decide. So I think ideas, initiatives, to allow those to be exercised yeah. without putting too many parameters, right. but basically, what is the game? What is the end game? Our vision, where do we want to get from here to there? And to frame it, but then to allow the path we take or multiple paths or whatever to be determined by the people who are actually the stakeholders and are going to ultimately have to deliver. Right. I think it's such a burden to think that the sun rises and sets on my being in this hotel every day or whatever. I feel really good sometimes. I'll be leaving on a, a trip halfway around the world here in about two weeks and I'll be gone for 11 days. And I don't worry. I still stay plugged in. Mm -hmm. You know, I'll check my emails or my texts or whatever and I'm always with my electronic leash so people can find me if they need it. And then I'm always excited to come home and see what has transpired and, you know, where we've come in, in that period of time. And it, it's almost as if you create brief testing time. The store is yours. I'll see you in a, in a while. And I used to not be able to really let go of like that. But uh, now it's um, it's a good feeling that it's okay. You know where to find me if you need me. Give people the, the confidence and the support to be able to grow yeah. and learn. I always can change the course if I see it's dangerous or um, if there's something I want more of or less of. I can make a call on that. But I much prefer to watch things unfold, being sure that people understand where where the car is 
hit it. Obviously, in your business and like most businesses, execution is key. So as a leader, how do you foster that with your leaders and your team, mm-hmm. you know, to drive successful execution? And how, how does that get defined for Gerald? The devil is in the details. Right. Um, the hotel business, there are so many different aspects, so many. And you're encountering every moment guests, vendors, community people, and every one of them is different. So we're not making widgets or manufacturing something to precision. So a lot of it is trial and error, and hopefully there's fewer errors, you know, some trials, but fewer errors. It's probably very dynamic and changing. And I think you have to evaluate the players. Mm -hmm. And you put the ones that, in your estimation, can move and navigate and give them a little bit more of the responsibility, especially frontline in a hotel. Because we rise and fall on the guest experience. In a hotel, it's brick and mortar. I mean, everybody has good sheets, good beds, lovely environment and so forth. But we, we don't sell that. We sell experiences. And it's a, it's a business of engagement. Mm-hmm. You can't sit in an office and turn the lights off at five and leave. It's a 24-hour-a-day, seven-day-a-week business that... You have to learn it, but it is still a business where you can start out as the elevator operator and be the CEO of the company. You right. can apprentice to this business. So I think a lot of what you're wondering about is is that um, opportunity for apprentice and, and learning and growing. Some people come out of Cornell or uh, the schools in Lausanne or wherever, right. and a lot of um, academic, um, but you, you have to... In, in this particular industry, you have to engage. The only way to do it is to get in the pool and, and do that. There is continuing education. I'm not saying you can't go back and learn some things, seminars, conferences, go back to university, spend three months at Harvard or whatever, or Cornell. And some people do that. But I place much more value on street smarts and a passion to serve. You know, I would hire for that in an instant much more than I would for a degree or something of that kind. It has to be the right individual with the right purpose to be successful i think in this business being a service business clearly all of us who are in sort of leadership positions at night have to look ourselves in the mirror (laughs) how do you at the end of the day know that you've done right in your activities of the day as a leader as a person that people are looking up to you mean aside from looking over your shoulder as you get in the car (laughs) in the parking lot (laughs) (laughs) i think it's a feeling knowing i mean it's um some days are slow some days are crazy but it's just a feeling that you have that you've contributed to someone else's success. Maybe through your facilitation, either overt or subtle, somebody has learned something. Certainly numbers are nice, but numbers are cold or hot. You know, they're not people. You know, there, there are times when I'll, like everybody who works and who's worked for a long time, sometimes in the morning you have to talk yourself up You know, okay, get your bottom moving, get going, and then you look in the mirror and you shave your face, you get in the car, you're driving in, all of a sudden you're on your freeway and the energy is a little better, and then boom, you come into the hotel. And hotels, I think I mentioned to you uh, once in another conversation that this business is a lot like theater. So when you come in, whatever's going on in your life, you just put on your game face. And I get my energy from people, and I think most people who are successful in this business do as well. You begin to engage, and your energy comes up. There are times when you'll be disappointed about decisions. You know, everybody has bosses. and uh, I have owners um, that uh, are relying on myself and my team to deliver on certain uh, metrics of the business. But after you go through a day, good or bad, um, the fact that you've been able to exchange that energy with people, and you're going home feeling like, you know, it's okay. It's going to be just fine. And if it's a day that's not like that, then I don't go home. <laughs> you know? 
But I, I think it's in your gut. It's a feeling that you have. Yeah. You know, I, I really appreciate you sharing those insights because I think, you know, in your business, I think it's unlike technology businesses. It's very, very different. Like you said, you're not building widgets and you're not creating, you know, assembly lines of robots and things like that. Every day is very unique and every moment sometimes is very unique. Yeah. I'm, I'm sure, you know, success. Mm-hmm. How do you define success for you or for your team? Well, I'll tell you, it's not a destination. I think it's uh, the path that you're on or you're not on. Success is enough. You know, it's not some, how would I describe it? It's not some measurement on the wall. I think being happy, being um, having some contentment about what you're doing and, and how you are in your life. Yeah, it's it's not a place you arrive at. It's 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 a journey, mm-hmm. and sometimes it feels good, and sometimes it doesn't, and it's not the end until it's the end. Mm-hmm. So um, I think being able to get to a point where giving back, I think that's a successful feeling. Um, it's not always about me, 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 me. It's about um, the collective. It's a, it's a very interesting question, Sudhir. But I think it's a state of mind. It has nothing to do with money. It has nothing to do with what kind of a car you drive or what you wear or where you go. It's really just feeling that it's right, that it's it's a state of mind for me. And you obviously, all of us, try to practice that every day <laughs> to try to determine, you know, yeah. good and bad days, good and bad hours sometimes. A little bit about values and morals related to, you know, leadership. Clearly, your leaders observe you. What are some of the things you try to inculcate into them and mm-hmm. uh, in a subtle way and, and just being who Gerald is as a leader, as a person? There has to be ethics involved there. We have some 500 people who are involved in this project every single day. And it seems that the farther you move along in your career, the bigger uh, glass you're under. Um, and you you cannot say one thing and do another thing. I, I think something about me is um, I, I tend to be very consistent. Sometimes it's hard to tell if I'm upset or I'm not upset. And I think when you're one person on Monday and you're another person on Wednesday and you're another person on Friday, you tend to confuse everything. It impacts trust. You never know what you're going to get. What side of the bed did he get up on? And I think being consistent and being able to look yourself in the mirror and you don't have two sets of rules and rules don't apply to somebody else and to yourself. To be ethical, to give people respect, to trust first rather than having somebody prove they're trustworthy, benefit of the doubt toward other other people, very important. But we all know in our gut what's right and what isn't right. And some people know that and choose to go a different way, or you know it and you follow it. You're absolutely right. Well, you know, in your business, being part of the community and giving back is important. The little I've gotten to know you, uh, you know, I feel like you're a very giving person. What does giving back mean to you, both on a personal basis and on a community basis? And of course, a professional basis, you do that a lot. Yeah. It's part of the hotel business. Yeah. We do. We here have a program that we refer to the acronym KISCA, which is K-I-S-C-A, and that stands for the Kahala Initiative for Sustainability, Culture, and the Arts. And we do quite a few different things. Um, it's important, you know, we, we're not independent here. We are part of the business community, but certainly we are um, citizens of Hawaii and Honolulu. 
And it's our responsibility, it's our kuleana to make sure that we are doing what we can to share, to help our community be better. We do scholarship work with the community colleges. We have a reforestation initiative. We're planting trees. We're committed to some 200,000 trees. It's going to take a long time. We have about four or 5,000 in the ground now because the native forests of Hawaii have you know, been, in some cases, decimated, and we're trying to bring them back. Um, the Bishop Museum, which is one of the biggest repositories of Hawaiiana in the world, we support heavily. Um, the preservation of the Iolani Palace. Um, we also participate in golf tournaments to benefit the Culinary Education Foundation or uh, the Heart Ball to um, benefit uh, the American Heart Association or participate with our chefs and we go to the uh, food bank warehouses and we we cook along with the great chefs fighting hunger. We mm-hmm. we go to the Lokahe fish ponds up in Haleiwa town. Mm-hmm. Uh, the fish ponds used to sustain Hawaiian people a thousand years ago, but a lot of them are derelict, so we're wading in the water and cleaning fish ponds and it's fun. It's 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 not work. And it's a way of building trust and respect for the brand we call Kahala. And you're gonna think this is strange coming from this boy from Mississippi, but I firmly accept the uh, concept of karma. I think that what you give comes back five times. Mm-hmm. And I always, whenever I get a request for a donation for this event or that event or whatever, I I always say, um, if you can, you can. If you cannot, you cannot. And uh, giving is easy. If you have the uh, resources and the ability to do it, there's no good reason not to do it. And I think people respect that. The community respects that. Um, this is a 55-year-old brand for all practical purposes and independent property, but we engage as much as we possibly can. Fascinating to hear, to hear you share that, and I, I've seen major elements of that being part of the community. What keeps you focused every day? Mm. <laughs> My owners. <laughs> <laughs> of course, and uh, a life in general, yeah. but you know, you come into a dynamic changing environment every day, I'm sure. We do. Um, I think for me, it's the people. Absolutely. I think I told you at one point that a hotel is like a small town, mm. and we have all of the different components of running a small town, you know, and at the end of the day, um, there are a lot of things going on, all different aspects, whether it's sales and marketing or finance or safety and security or culinary and all of those things. And as you know, a hotel is 24 hours, seven days a week, so you either keep up or you get run over. And so that doesn't take long after you enter the building in the morning to really get up to cruising speed and you know deal with what you have to do. Always keeping in mind big rocks first, you know, you know that analogy. And what about talking about success, you know? Mm-hmm. How would you define a successful day in your mind in this industry? <laughs> when somebody encounters me and says, this has been one of the best experiences of my life to come to the Kahala and to experience um, the sense of place here and the legacy of the hotel. And we've had so many people over five decades now, some famous, some infamous, and so forth. But just people who save up for, you know, a lifetime trip and who fly. You know, Hawaii is um, the most isolated archipelago on the planet, and you have to get on a plane and really want to be here and to come so far and to trust us and uh, make an investment in memories and experiences. And they step up and say, it's just been incredible, is a very, very satisfying. Um, on the other side, staff experiences, either personal or professional successes, 
that's always kind of a bump for me. I think that's really terrific. As they can be minor or they can be major, but uh, yeah, it's people. That's all that we have in life. Impacting people and accomplishments related to their lives. You get to do that every day as a leader. How do you see people impacted in your team, you know, when, when you uh, are leading from the front lines? Well, I think that uh, we try to minimize the drama. I think a lot of colleagues um, get caught up in the day-to-day and in their own specific responsibilities. And at times, they can be uh, peer groups or they can be uh, subordinate and, uh, you know, leader and they can get lost a little bit in the drama and I think that it really takes away the energy or the momentum of where we're trying to go as a group collectively so I try to as I said remain calm and to be a calming influence let people know that you know it might not really be that important let's keep it in perspective so you know reflecting back about 40 years of being in the industry as a professional, you know, how do you look back? Where do you think priorities have changed and how do you see priorities in leadership and life in general? For For me personally? Yeah. Yeah. um, One word, balance. And I know you hear that a lot, but uh, I I used to um, live and breathe work and uh, my wife fortunately we met in the hotel business so she has some understanding of how it can be all-consuming because it is a hotel opens when it's born and it closes when it dies and in between it doesn't stop so you can literally work yourself to death if you choose 10 12 14 hour days but i believe in working effectively and smart giving yourself time to enjoy family to enjoy these beautiful islands where we live in doing that you actually help preserve the energy that is required to do what you do for what you're paid to do. And uh, I, we, we love to go to the movies or play a little golf. Or, and I'm the first one to say, go home to somebody because it's important. What are you doing for the weekend with the family? What, what's going on with that? I think it's very, very important. People who aren't tend to be somewhat one-dimensional and it's not always healthy. How is Hawaii as a culture really affected your thinking and your leadership style and uh, you as a person. Well, you've lived here for a long time. Aloha is not a bumper sticker. It's actually a a culture. I think it's it's an amazing place. There are over a million people in Honolulu and it's funny how you can rarely go anywhere that you don't see someone you know Mm. or someone who's related to somebody. It's a little bit slower, I think, because probably our geographic location. Um, I'm not gone from Hawaii long that I'm not thinking about coming back. It is a very diverse, multicultural place. So diversity is is something that I think is real here and that people are tolerant. We make fun of each other, uh, whether you're Japanese, Chinese, Portuguese, Irish, uh, (laughs) wherever you come from. It's like somebody has a story about something, the music, the, the food, and just the sheer natural beauty of the place is really quite remarkable. But I think the most important thing for me, something I like, is that people are a little bit, for the most part, kind. They're respectful. Sometimes that creates problems on the freeway. (laughs) You don't hear a lot of horns being honked. I think that goes beyond just driving the car. I think that's the way the culture is, is, uh, for the most part. And I think it comes from a thousand years of codependency that just still resonates in this place. You know, I think Hawaii has a lot to teach the world. Some people say Hawaii is a canoe. And then they go so far as to say the planet is a canoe and we're all in this canoe together. And the success or failure of the enterprise depends on cooperation and those kinds of things. I think it's, um, it's a pretty remarkable place. 
As we wind down our time, it goes all this so quickly for me. I've done a couple of these now, and I always tend to look at the watch and realize, oh, where has the time gone? And well, we're having a great easy. Co- conversation, but I want to uh, ask you one last question. Mm-hmm. And uh, how does Gerald Clennon want to be remembered by people? As a good guy, and that um, you try to take care of people. Yeah, as a bench. Well, you've sure made an impact in, 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 in our life, I can tell you. And uh, in the short time we've gone to know you, Gerald, and I think you do impact many people. And it's been a privilege for us to get to know you as a family living next door, but more importantly, uh, to get to know Gerald Glennon, not Gerald Glennon, the, the manager, general manager of, of this incredible resort in this beautiful island, but, you know, to know who you are as a person. I'm very Thank privileged. You, Thank you for joining us on the show. My pleasure. Appreciate it. Thank you so much. So, dear, Gerald Glennon's ability to move past adversity and employ as much of a common-sense approach as possible has allowed him to evolve and thrive in the hotel industry. He has learned to move on from the past and has become a better leader because of that. I was particularly affected by his comment of not living in your mistakes. Additionally, Gerald's definition of success allows him to stay grounded and content. Having a home base in Hawaii definitely helps as the local culture nurtures his broad view of the world. Join us next time for another episode of Cracking the Code.